The Revision Speaker Series is a Guildhouse initiative bringing together creative minds from around the globe to discuss contemporary arts practice. Revision has been curated as a COVID response, enhancing connectivity, sustainability and well-being across the arts community. This podcast is an audio recording from a live Zoom session recorded on Ghana Country. Susan Lachlan is currently Dean of Research at UniSA. Professor of Cultural and Creative Industries, and when she's not working in the capacity of Dean, she's the director of CP3, Creative People, Products and Places Research Group at the University of South Australia. In 2020, she authored Craftspeople and the Designer Makers in the Contemporary Creative Economy, and has a swag of publications around contemporary cultural economies and creative employment under her belt. And she has stewarded the Mentor-Mentee, a Creative Relationship Research Paper for the last three years. Here is Susan to tell us more. Thank you so much, Debbie. Um, and thanks, everyone. Lovely to be here uh, again. Um, before I begin, I'll just acknowledge, too, that I live and work on the lands of the Ghana people. And I was so grateful for their incredibly rich and long history and present activity and around cultural and creativity. I'll just mention, I think some of the people in the room, including Kath, actually, um, were really generous contributors to that project as well. That the Craftspeople Design and Bankers book comes, came out of. Um, and I'll just mention that it is actually open access. We, because so many people are, that participate in that aren't university academics and have access, or students and have access to libraries, and because academic books are so stupidly expensive, uh, we made sure that one was open access. So if anyone's interested in chasing back that one, it is available for free online. Uh, so thank you for being here today. Uh, with apologies to those people who may have been at the launch of this interim report. Um, a couple of weeks ago, some of the same ground will be gone over, but hopefully a bit more slowly, uh, have a bit more time to tease out some of the um, findings from this. And hopefully we'll definitely have a lot of time to hear back from people out there about what their feelings are towards it. Um, there's quite a lot in here. So the other thing I'll also mention, especially because the data is often so dense, Anyone can download a copy of this particular report. It's available from the Guildhouse website. It'll be the easiest place to find it from. Please feel free to go there and access it yourself, especially if you want to check up the details of some of the graphs a bit more. As uh, Debbie's already mentioned, this research was is possible because of the generous support of the M. Potter Foundation. And also I'll acknowledge the Deputy Vice-Chancellor Research and Enterprise here at UniSA. Uh, she made funding available uh, to some research projects where events with uh, key community partners had to be cancelled. So this report is primarily available now because um, it replaced a face-to-face -face event we hope to happen in the past. So jumping on into it. So far, because it is an interim report, we still have two years of catapult uh, events and catapult program to follow up on. Uh, but we've, so far we've undertaken 37 interviews with people who have been involved in Guildhouse and formerly Craft South uh, mentorship programs for over or almost up to 20 years. We've got a good spread of mentors and mentees across this. I just realised there's actually a typo in this, and I've noticed that for the first time today, which is a terrifying thought after a month of it being in circulation. Um, that top figure should be pre-2018 mentors, not mentees. We have gone out and done semi-structured interviews with people and thank you once again to those of you who are in the room here today uh, that have participated in this. 
this research would not have been possible without your generous time. And so we really, really appreciate the fact you're going to give of your experience and provide feedback. So there's not just the catapult programs that are featured here, all uh, limber up, quite a few other programs people might be familiar with have been part of this story here. In terms of demographics, they in many ways reflect uh, the particular profile of perhaps the, to some degree, the community itself, but also those who have participated. And I know there's some challenges here that Guildhouse itself is seeking to address in terms of uh, the particular demographic profile and the diversity of the particular participant cohort. I know that in particular, uh, engaging more Aboriginal uh, creative practitioners and regional and, and uh, rural creative practitioners is on the radar for Guildhouse. But I'll also want to draw your attention to the age of participants. Um, one of the things that sometimes people might presume of a mentorship relationship is that it's mostly older people mentoring younger people, perhaps entrance into a field around creative practice and how to get ahead in that particular space. I think one of the standout things, and we'll hear more about this later, one of the standout things from this research and from the breadth and the quality of the experience people have had with the Guildhouse programs has been that quite often uh, age is not an issue in the relationship to the extent that it's just people who are of a similar age or the focus has been very much on just people who are already mid-career wanting to develop a new skill, go into a different place, have a chance to reflect upon something, and the mentorship's given space to do that. So I think it's really important here to, it, to dismiss any presumptions around, you know, more experienced people being the leads and always the mentors. It's, it's a rich and complex mixture of relationships that we see emerging here and is part of the key value of the mentorship programs. So this is where I mentioned <laughs> you know, more dense uh, graphics. So fingers crossed you've got a bigger screen than I do um, and you can start to make sense of all this. We asked everybody what they perceived were the barriers to getting ahead in making a life as a creative practitioner. And I think I don't probably need to tell anyone in this Zoom room that cash flow is a key one of those. Trying to make a full-time or at least a sustainable income as a creative practitioner, as we know, is incredibly difficult. This is true of lots of places, but certainly in Australia, um, as David Frosby's works revealed, most people are generally working multiple um, jobs. Um, at best, maybe a portfolio career, i.e. working multiple jobs with some employment either within the creative sector or outside its subsidising creative practice. And so the challenge is often to find the balance there. And often people come to mentorships hoping uh, to find ways in which they can learn to have creative practice as their principal income. One of the stories I just remember thinking coming through in the back of uh, some of the interviews was people came into it hoping to learn how to make the primary income from creative practice, but often ended up learning from their mentor, who may well be an incredibly well-known person in their field, that the reality is even for them that that wasn't the way their world works. So there was a mutual coming to peace or coming to terms with or making one's peace with the complexity of either living with less um, income or just getting used to, unfortunately, the realities of having to balance multiple income streams. Uh, other things that emerge here um, that are quite striking, all this um, interesting, there's a shift we found in the more recent catapult participants, whereby the issue of government funding, as you can see, ceases to be less of a focus. 
And a lot of the more what you might call entrepreneurial skill sets start to emerge. How do I find places to sell? How do I develop my own profile? Marketing and promotion, professional networks. These are the kind of things people came in thinking were key barriers to uh, work contemporary creative uh, career development are. And while I doubt most people think that government funding isn't a challenge these days, I think this reflects that reality that there's far less government money and grant money out there than there used to be. So whereas historically maybe that was more of a key focus for people's activity these days, there's such a dearth of that, that people having to recalibrate what they're coming in and what their expectations are around mentorships. So family, work-life balance, need to support others, is um, also emerged um, here. And I think linked to marketing and promotion, you can see somebody specifically singled out the expense of photography. So overall, I think about to say this one key take home from the whole research so far for me was the incredible importance of mentorships, and especially mentorships like this one or like the ones that uh, Guildhouse offer, which are paid to some extent and come from an organisation like Guildhouse that's really respected, was the way in which mentorships were valued for the validation that they gave people. Um, above and beyond whatever they got out of the mentorship, especially for mentees, the mere fact that people had taken them seriously as creative practitioners, that a senior colleague or a respected colleague had been willing to invest time in them to give them um, the benefit of their experience. Just, you know, given so many of us go through life with a sense of a, a forward complex the fact that this had happened, that these outsiders had said, there you go, you know, we think you're worth investing in as a credit practitioner, it was a huge, huge boost for people and one that can't be overestimated in a cultural climate that often doesn't feel like it values arts and creative practice. So that sense of validation, of confidence building, that kind of language you'll see, keep seeing coming through in these kinds, in many of the quotes that we have from this research. That sense of permission also to keep going when perhaps at times people are feeling that the cash flow issue is just overwhelming and maybe I should go back to my day job or focusing on other things. That sense of permission to keep going is incredibly important for your mentorship project. So in terms of how valuable people found it, most mentees responded that the mentorship has or will have career-long value and impacts across um, their working career and their lives almost or lots of people identified it as a key moment in their career. Often this would take some time to emerge. It was often people who had done a mentorship um, five, 10 years ago, they felt more confident saying absolutely life-changing. Uh, in the immediate aftermath, that might be less, uh, less evident. And even if people didn't necessarily get out of it exactly what they went into it looking for, the mere um, experience of it was still one that was they found to be invaluable, if only to have perhaps more realistic um, expectations put on the table in front of them. One of the other key things we found too was the mutual benefit. We'll possibly hear more about this later on too. Both mentees and mentors spoke about it being an incredibly valuable experience. I think mentees are more reluctant to say mentors had a great time. Mentors tend to be on the whole very happy to say they found it an incredibly valuable experience. We did offer lots of you know, negative options in our survey of people. We did put them on the table, but as you can see here, um, people have tended to tick the invaluable or valuable box. Only one person wasn't sure. There were two negative options before that, below this, just in case you're wondering. So, as I said, the language of confidence, um, of um, giving a sense of feeling empowered to keep going, 
of self-worth is just constantly coming through in the interview data, the really rich interview data we got. So to get to the nitty gritty of the programs a bit more, the fact that these are scaffolded programs is really valued, especially at the beginning and end stages of the relationship, the fact that there was some formalization, that there were outside people checking in, uh, that there was some advice and direction given to people to perhaps formalize or openly discuss their plans or expectations, how they're gonna manage the relationship, and then to sort of close off on it, was seen as incredibly valuable above and beyond a less formal um, kind of um, arrangement or more informal kind of arrangement. This too was a part uh, sense valuable when it came to facilitating the connections between the mentor and mentee. That said, uh, most people tended to report that, that any relationship, the best relationships or many of the better relationships are ones where people had a say in who they were partnered with. They may ask them directly and feel confident enough to do that, or they may suggest, I would really love for this person to be my mentor and Guildhouse then potentially the initiating or approaching that person but having some degree of choice and decision making was seen as a really important part of the process for most people. This was also important for developing a sense of trust, um, an open space where people felt that they could freely muck up I suppose or ask questions that they felt were silly. To have the confidence to stretch and to go places where that aren't necessarily comfortable. It was just considered incredibly important by most respondents that you actually trusted the other person was gonna make a negative judgment upon that, that that was, that the, the mentorship was a safe space for that kind of thing to occur. It was incredibly important. So being able to choose who you work with was a key part of that. So in terms of what people hope to gain, more dense um, data-driven uh, slides, this is what people went in thinking that they hoped to gain. So you've got the two groups of people, the catapult mentees from the first cohort last year and mentees from all the programs before this. A uh, you know, basic starting point is to learn from the mentor's knowledge and experience. Interestingly, um, the self-confidence, to increase my self-confidence emerged as a key thing people went into it. Uh, expecting. I'm wondering if that's actually true and that's maybe something in retrospect that emerged, but I can't go into people's minds and assume that. Um, to gain personal insight and develop as a creative practitioner, obviously, to learn from one another, blah, blah, blah. So also important here is the issue of accessing networking. And I'll talk a little bit more brief, uh, shortly about the key ways in which mentorships, relationships are often ongoing in terms of being a gatekeeper or sorry being a senior person in your um, court that will continue to have a relationship with you beyond the course of the um, formal uh, relationship so growth access confidence key things here in practice what people actually felt they gained hope to gain what would you say were the most significant gains yes i'm in the same room i think i'm in what did you say were the most significant gains um, in practice, um, as we said, one of the key things that emerged was that confidence boost, it's been taken seriously by your peers, um, and having access to a respected colleague to ask those questions of, to pick up the phone, to send an email to the kind of person that's like a best friend, professional best friend, you know, you just get something that occurs to you, can I just touch base with them to get a sense of what they think about this opportunity or this idea, it was seen as just incredibly invaluable. So in a similar vein, uh, that issue of, as I've already said, um, because a lot of people now graduate from our art schools um, and colleges and other institutions. And so figuring out ways in which 
you can go for the rite of passage whereby you seem to be taken seriously and where you're accepted is something that people have to negotiate a lot more inform a lot more themselves these days. I suppose the absence of grant opportunities is one of the spaces whereby that particular pathway is no longer as open as it used to be. If you get a government grant or a, a residency or something, you, you can feel that you've arrived. So one of the things that was definitely happening was that sense of um, the mentorship providing a license to some people who maybe didn't feel they'd had that before to keep going and go to new places. For others who already quite well established themselves, um, it was often just an opportunity to think left of centre, to have new space to explore new techniques, to look at their own work through the lens of maybe a different kind of discipline we practice, um, a space in which to just pivot to a slightly different kind of practice or a different mode of operating or a different mode of disseminating their work. So do people find it valuable? Um, once again, I do reinforce the fact we always did have negative options there. It says no here. It's one of the options, but on the whole, absolutely. Even when people didn't have the greatest experience in the world, maybe aren't in contact, regular contact still with their mentor slash mentee, people really did find it valuable. And I think that intersection of the way in which it was both personally and professionally valuable speaks both to people's sense of vocation um, of being a creative practitioner, as well as the ways in which it enriches not just people's creative practice, but themselves as human beings. Um, and just having somebody who you could trust to talk to to support you um, obviously has ramifications for our sense of selves as much as what we do in our work and professional lives. So how do people rate their experience? Once again, we did have two negative options before neutral, um, but no one selected them. So as I said, people did on the whole find, it's, it's, we couldn't find people that were willing to A, speak to us, I suppose, perhaps, but self-selecting group. But everyone did actually find that they found the process valuable, even if you don't necessarily come out of it with what you went in. Key things to, uh, that people I spoke to about what they could do, um, the mere fact that they had a stretch peer was considered invaluable. Um, people were saying that the loss of major individual grants um, meant that it was taking longer for people to get established as creative practitioners. So this was just a really valuable space for reflection as a uh, creative practitioner that was really highly valued. And for both mentors and mentees, the space to reflect, to plan, to strategize, to do something different and not just keep responding to the immediacy of the things in front of you, but to actually sort of hopefully take a big deep breath and do something different and sort of explore new concepts or practices was just incredibly valuable. So when it comes to perhaps more looking at the mentorship from a, a mentor's perspective, uh, it was really lovely to just read some of the quotes from mentors. Uh, mentors were just as likely, if not more likely, mentees to talk up how much they love being involved in mentorship relationships. I love this particular one, which defines mentorship and the relationship as one that's like nutrients and giving meaning to their work. Um, but the sense of reciprocity was palpable. Some people who were perhaps more established and further out of university enjoyed working with somebody who brought in fresh ideas and different kinds of perspectives maybe skills around promotion, social media marketing that they didn't have, but at the same time, there was a reciprocity there of just sharing. Um, other people all really, and it comes out, some, I think, in Sarah Waters' quote just here, really felt a sense of obligation back to the community. I think it speaks beautifully for the creative community in South Australia and beyond, um, that 
they looked back upon their own career and think about all the times somebody had been in their court for them and just felt compelled and obliged to give back and to keep that sense of networking and opportunity going. Um, I actually think this is one of the incredibly wonderful things about um, the arts and creative community, that despite being constantly under the pump, you know, and COVID's just brought this out even more, there is, you know, with some exceptions always, but there's such a sense of strong community and mutual support out there. So a sense of wanting to give back, uh, paying things forward, uh, acknowledging the support that people receive themselves, some people who were mentoring from towards the end of their career saw the opportunity to be a mentor in a formal program like this is almost a form of succession planning, a chance to hand on skills that might otherwise be potentially lost to the community in the belief that, you know, this what goes around comes around, these skills will not be lost. But once again, too, and let's, uh, it's important to realise that it was the fact like this was a scaffolded program and a paid program, a program where people could be paid for their time. Mentors like mentees are all struggling to make ends work, um, have competing demands upon their time. So the fact that it's been wonderful, the Guildhouse are in a position to at least offer some money to people for their time is an important part of this and one that it's really important that, to reinforce and to not take for granted. People need to be respected and valued for their time and have the space to give back and money is required to help enable that. So the goodwill is there, um, it's clearly there, but you know, we need to actually be realistic about people's ability to do this out of the goodness of their own heart. And so I do really want to reiterate that. So has the experience encouraged you to mentor others is something that Bill us were keen to find out. People invented a fourth response to this, which was already doing that. We didn't have that on our first form, um, but yes, <laughs> most people enjoyed the experience so much they wanted to do it again. And it was just lovely to have quite a few of the mentors talk about the fact that, you know, you don't stop doing it necessarily, or it's something they're doing in either a formal or informal capacity. And one of the other key ways in which people do it in a formal capacity is often through various forms of teaching. So just to wrap up, um, when we asked people about whether they wrapped up and formally closed off the mentorship or did it keep going, quite a lot of people, and I think we'll see a good example of that shortly, spoke about the fact there was an ongoing process. While it may not be take the same form and it may not be as regular, they still felt they had somebody that they could ring up and ask, would you mind if I put your name down on the grant application, an application to a gallery? Would you mind opening this exhibition for me? Could, I be, could you be a sounding board for X, Y, Z? There were still ways in which the relationship continued in some kind of informal way, which was seen as invaluable for people on an ongoing basis. And, you know, principally this was around opening doors, especially for people who felt they still needed somebody to give them that kind of entree. So I just want to finish on, you know, I'm an academic and I've been yakking on for a while. So, you know, to end on a lecturally note, um, I want to bring in the work of uh, Mahali Csikszentmihalyi, and people might be familiar with this concept of flow. Flow is a concept that's actually translated out of um, university sector and into the wider world. And I've written down the eight key, key or eight of the key qualities that he speaks of. But effectively, flow is that state, and many artists and creative practitioners will know it, where, you know, time just seems to pass without you noticing it. You just get into this space where you have a challenge in front of you that you can concentrate on. It is challenging, but not to the point that it's, you're unable to do it, that you have to think through the possibilities. It's also not so boring or easy that you just you know, can do it while you're listening to somebody to give a lecture like this in the background. 
it's that wonderful zone where you just go into it and time flies and you're just in your happy place. Um, a sense of flow enables. And in some ways, you know, the best mentorships reflected this kind of process. It was one, a relationship where there was some pushback, where there was some stretching, where there was some encouragement to challenge people. There wasn't just a constant affirmation. It might be an affirmation if you're doing the right thing, keep going. But there was a sense in which, you know, people were encouraged to go beyond their own comfort zones. There was also one where people felt that they got some reward for that, that they could see movement, that they'd set realistic um, expectations at the beginning that challenged them but were attainable. Just finding that right sense of balance um, was something that the best uh, mentorships seem to reflect and show that they've been able to find. So to finally complete before we head on to a discussion, in some ways, mentorships are so taken for granted in arts and creative practice that we might completely think, well, Dirk, you know, they are great, so why don't we have more of them, which is exactly what we should have. But I also think it's worth uh, reinforcing the value of them for fear that we lose them. We're, we're in such a tight funding environment um, that it really is worth holding up and championing the value of these relationships, the importance of funding them, and the importance of resourcing them generally because they are so central to the way in which skills and support are offered to people in the creative fields. Um, there's been very little research done into these at the university level. It's one of the first things we actually found out when we started to do this work. There's been virtually nothing written despite the centrality of them across centuries to the creative relationship and skills transmission. So it's kind of almost something that flies under the radar as a taken for granted. As we know in the current environment, we can't take anything for granted. So I think it's worth celebrating the wonderful experiences, celebrating all the work and labor and love that's gone into these kind of mentorships and continues to, and speaking and up highly the importance of all of these as we continue to move forward um, into the future and into a complex and often uncertain future. So I'll briefly hand back to you, Debbie. Thank you so much, Susan. That was uh, incredibly rich and I'm sure there are many questions um, that we will all pounce on you with once we've talked to Catherine and Kath. <laughs> so I'll introduce Catherine and Kath and then the two of you actually might answer some of those questions in your conversation. Um, so Catherine Truman is no doubt no stranger to most people in this room. <laughs> An established and internationally recognised object maker and contemporary jeweller and co-founder of Australia's longest-running artist-run initiative, Grey Street Workshop. Catherine also Catherine works across the disciplines of art and science and is currently working towards a groundbreaking solo exhibition at the Museum of Economic Botany and the Dead House as part of the 2021 Adelaide Biennial. Kath Inglis is an esteemed South Australian jeweller who is renowned for her inimitable PVC jewellery. A former Jan Factory Metal Studio associate and co-founder of Soda and Rhyme Jewellery Space, Kath took part in the Guildhouse Collections Project at the Museum of Economic Botany in 2019. And while researching the algae collection, discovered new processes and techniques extending her practice even further. Last week, she was awarded the National Contemporary Jewellery Award through Griffith Regional Gallery. Congratulations, Kath. <laughs> I'll hand it over to the three of you. Thank you, Debbie. Um, when we were putting this together, uh, Debbie asked me, who would you, you know, suggest we get in to talk um, for a Q&A? And ironically, we both identified Kath and Catherine as our dream team. So thank you so much for being available to have a chat with us today. Catherine and Kath, uh, congratulations to you, Kath, uh, on, that, on that fantastic recent achievement. 
you are, <laughs> in many ways, our dream team. And I spoke about the importance of, or how people discussed um, the significance of how they came together and having a sense of the other person that they were working with as a mentor slash mentee. Would you like to comment upon how you came together in your mentorship relationship? So um, uh, working some Grey Street workshops. So I started working at Grey Street in 2001. Um, it was my first year out of uni and um, I worked there for a few years um, and it wasn't until, oh, sorry, one year. Then I went to the jam factory as an associate for two years. And at that stage, I felt like I needed to, to do a mentorship with someone and I reflected back on um, Catherine and that she would be a good match um, for her conceptual um, skills and and how she thinks and talks about work, but also that she was a Feldenkrais practitioner. And I felt like that would be um, a very good uh, input into my practice to make it more sustainable. So I approached Catherine if I could apply for a mentorship with her, um, which was successful, and that was in 2004. And it was fabulous. I really yeah. enjoyed it. The wonderful thing um, that's happened between Kath and I is that the relationship has been ongoing so if you don't mind Susan if I just sort of segue a little bit into that area because I think it makes it special and I think uh, we bonded immediately um, I have great respect even way back for Kath's uh, commitment it's what I look for when I work with anybody uh, it doesn't matter who it is or what age they are but if they're committed um, on some level to um, actually having a practice because Having a practice is different from just dipping in and dipping out of a, a career in the arts. When you commit to a practice, it's lifelong and continuous. And I could see that in Kath. And uh, indeed, we have, um, we have partnered um, twice in terms of uh, formal mentoring, uh, once in 2004 and another time with the Catapult program in 2016. And our paths crossed again um, at, in, in the herbarium and the, um, the Botanic Gardens of South Australia where we, well, we mentored each other during that one. So <laughs> the relationship <laughs> evolved over time to, to now being, you know, colleagues. Well, thanks for that. And it's interesting you mentioned that commitment to a practice. Um, quite a lot of the discussions I'm having just variously these days with people around um, Australia on creative practice um, talk about the opportunity that's been provided by COVID given there's been such a focus on how people when we were locked down at home turned to creative practice, downloading all sorts of things as a wonderful thing for the arts. But at the same time, I'm often having to say back to them, amateur activity at home doesn't necessarily make for a, a healthy paid sector. So it's interesting you mentioned that commitment to professional practice because that's definitely, I think, something that emerged in the research was the importance of a professional community still protecting itself and protecting its skills and giving a sense of access and expansion to other people. Um, I think that's something that's probably going to be an important part of mentorships moving forward, especially in the mass market, lots of internet um, access. But I'm, I'm going off. For you, because you know, clearly this relationship has been wonderful and ongoing um, and, you know, incredibly mutual, what worked for you? Uh, who are you asking? Either of you. What worked for you as a partnership? I'll go back to Kath first. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think the first thing is to be vulnerable, be comfortable with that. If you can't come into the process 
with trust and that willing to be open to growth, you know. And it, sometimes growth can be difficult and that's, that's, that's okay. That's the good bit. But if you can't be vulnerable, you really limit um, the experience and you need to be open to it. And, and I think my biggest thing that um, I really appreciate from Catherine is um, her ability to listen to um, very nuanced words and tease them apart um, and to ask really good questions that cut to a core that make you go, oh, that's really a um, really fundamental ground shifting movement that can tectonic shifts that can happen within with your thinking and is really, uh, you know, can, can fill you with awe when those things happen. So, yeah, there might be big things for a mentor, finding someone who can ask the right question, good listener, and someone you can be vulnerable with. Thank you, Catherine. What worked for you as a mentor initially and now just as a friend and colleague? I, I think those things that, that Kath has highlighted are really critical, although I don't, I don't ask people to be vulnerable. <laughs> but actually, before I say that, on, on um, um, how people uh, come to a considered practice, a lot of them, if you ask them, and, and I do, I, I, I like to know what the roots are of people's creative um, expression because it can come through anything. They will say they've done a little course at home, you know, or they've done a small hobby course that started off as a hobby and it's grown from there. So many people actually who are uh, quite well-known practitioners now uh, will say that. So I'm just, um, I think it's important actually to start, to, to start at home. But in terms of what works, what's worked with Kath is that um, I think it's uh, her ability to um, be honest, to be, um, to be able to, maybe she didn't start with the skills of being able to lay it all bare and to, I always, I mean, I always say a classic thing that I, that I think is important is that you learn to get in a little plane and you fly over the top of your practice and you look down and you see all the fissures from creeks that join into rivers, you know. You, you kind of understand, you begin to understand that the resource is with you, uh, that you don't always have to look outwards to form a practice that's valuable and meaningful. And with Kath, you know, heaps of, heaps of kind of raw material there that was so rich and obviously um, we could build from there. And, uh, and she was very willing to be open right from the start. And also she's got an amazing ability to learn um, and to teach me um, alongside. There needs to be that kind of exchange. Otherwise, you know, the meaning must be reciprocated. <laughs> uh, otherwise, why are you there? So um, we, ha we had a really good foundation. Thank you both for that. Um, it was the reciprocity and that longevity of this relationship that really stood out to me. But, okay, we're going to be honest here. It wasn't always smooth sailing, I'm assuming. <laughs> um, if you encountered any, can you remember what they were and how did you get through them? What advice would you give to people working through maybe moments where things aren't smelling, sailing as smoothly as you hoped? Yeah. Uh, I know that I was actually because I admire Catherine so much to to open up at first that was hard and um, I, I don't know if you remember Catherine I was very um, ashamed of my uh, visual diaries yes I do 
crazy. I love your Kishugari cat. <laughs> they, don't, they don't go in order. I'll have numerous of them that, that, that I use throughout years. Uh, they're upside down. I go back to front. They, there is, it's just my process. It's just um, how I work. But, um, yeah, not very ordered, not, um, not put together, that, that part. But I, I actually like that. But, um, but it, was, it took a bit for me to open that up. But that's that was fantastic, and I often use that as an example of being yourself, uh, of not having to follow other people's convention, of finding what what really feels comfortable from you, from your roots, from your history, from your life, from your family. You know, where does that all come from, and what's valuable? And and cat, <laughs> the most interesting part of that for me, the most. And the most frustrating was the fact that she was ashamed of it. Not, not the actual fact that the visual diary was hard to decipher. Um, it was the, the, um, uh, the barrier that feeling ashamed or not um, worried about, you know, whether you're good enough. Um, mm. that's, that's the hardest thing usually to surmount uh, in a mentoring relationship. And uh, once, but once the flow happens. Um, once that happens, you forget all that. You just it's a off. joke now. <laughs> yeah, talk about it. <laughs> I, I can't think of any other um, tensions that were between us. I'm very much uh, of the mind that that the mentee must lead the process. Uh, I'm there to go. You know, maybe come in here a little bit. You know, do that. Basically, whatever that means. But I do that a little bit. Um, but basically, the mentee leads it. So, um, you know, it's always full of surprises. And that's, that can't be bad, huh? I mean, <laughs> it's very exciting. <laughs> I think that's a lovely note to end on. Um, and throw open to you, back to you, Debbie, and any possible questions we have. I think there's a few in the chat already. Thank you so much. I'm going to um, actually kick off the questions with my own questions, selfishly. Um, Catherine, this is to you. I know that you're you're kind of in demand as a mentor. Lots of people want to um, get your opinion and your observations and guidance. But I'm wondering, where have you gone in the past for a mentor? Who, who's been the person that has helped guide you? Well, apart from my mentees who've grown up. <laughs> <laughs> you've taken them. Fantastic, <laughs> a fantastic community of um, mentees. And, you know, I wouldn't say that, you know, I felt in demand at all. Um, people, you know, they they will ask me uh, definitely, and I and I do take on people. And I and in fact, it's part of my practice that I that it, that I find the most incredibly valuable part. So, if anybody wants mentoring, please please step up. But I mean, I yeah, I just I I, I find the whole process uh, valuable myself. Yeah. I, I don't know what else to say about that, really. I just wondered whether there'd been a particular person, but it sounds like it's a lot more. Holistic. Oh, in terms of influences, yeah. No, I just the people that I work with generally, I seek out um, research opportunities everywhere. So, um, yeah, I went a bit awry with that question. Hang on, I'll get back to the point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I definitely, um, uh, I'm a research-based practitioner. And I work across uh, disciplines for a reason. 
And that is because of the richness that those um, people in other disciplines can, can give me. And they might not know it until the very end, but they've given me heaps just through me, allowing me to be there uh, to observe them. So there's been heaps. One of the people um, to come to mind mainly uh, is Ian Gibbons, Professor Ian Gibbons, Emeritus Professor, who was the head of anatomy and a neuroscientist and who, with whom I still collaborate. Uh, in fact, he's going to open my show um, and he's writing a catalogue essay and we're editing films together <laughs> for it. So we still have a very strong relationship and he's, uh, he's very inspiring to me. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm going to head over to the chat and read out some of the questions for you. Um, Susan, this one is for you from Belinda. A couple of weeks ago, the preliminary findings from the gender pay gap among Australian artists from Macquarie Uni came out. One of the more revealing insights was surrounding the ideas and concerns of confidence and validation. The mentee-mentee relationship seems to illuminate some of the same ideas. Can you speak to the way gender intersects with your findings? Is it a model preferred by female artists? Is it more beneficial to women artists' careers? That's, that's a really interesting question. Um, I don't know if it's preferred. I, we had, uh, looking at the stats, I was just dragging them out, uh, 25 uh, female interviewees or people identify as female, 12 identify as male. So the figures themselves are skewed towards women. Some of the data reflects that experience. I don't think it's necessarily a model that um, is gendered as a model at least. Maybe people's willingness to talk about confidence was a little bit more likely to be something that was expressed by women. But I'm looking at, remembering looking through the interviews, I did not notice a huge gender difference. There were some individuals who almost never spoke about emotions, perhaps at all in relation to and focused upon practice-based and professional activity. Maybe there were a few more of men than women of that, but I don't remember it being a huge thing here. Mm -hmm. So I actually think the mentorship experience itself was one where that didn't necessarily come out, at least in the interviews, a difference between uh, genders. And of course, there were different kinds of, of, of uh, mentor-mentee relationships. Um, uh, women who are mentored by men, men who are mentored by women, women who are mentored by other women, men who are mentored by other men. So there was, there was a mixture of relationships there. And there was commonality across them. I will say in relation to um, that question, just two things. One is, um, as a sector, um, the casualization of the experience, I suppose, is something that can be generally shared and create just insecurity for everybody. Um, we're often referred to casual work as the feminization of work, but the reality is it's something experienced by huge numbers of men and women today. So I think that makes people's sense of professional security Differently experienced, definitely, but something that people are having to think about, a lot of people are having to think about in this space. The other one was um, just the fact that the sector itself is gendered in particular ways. So perhaps I think a few more of the male participants may have had more reliable work as creative practitioners. So that was probably the biggest difference. They're already in a position of maybe greater income security. So that was where the gendering came out. They were already employed in their own business or as for a large organisation. So that would change the language and the issue of confidence. They're already insiders with a full-time job. They're looking to change their practice or extend it. Thank you. From Sue B, we have um, a few different threads. Hang on, I'm just joining them together. 
in front of you all <laughs> asking what does a session look like and does and does the mentor show the mentee their current work and get feedback or does the mentor show the mentee their work and talk about it how does um, how do you prescribe exercises um, this person's only familiar with the teacher student experience so maybe if you could unpack um, Kath and Catherine what your process was how you met was it in person did you literally show physical work or was it a conceptual kind of conversation yeah, do you want to speak that? yeah, I was going to say, uh, both the mentorships um, that we had were very different from each other, um, which probably reflected um, the point I was in my career. So the first mentorship was when I was at the end of the emerging stage and um, uh, I had specific things that I wanted as well. We broke, we, we met weekly and I was working at Grey Street Workshops. So we had informal discussions over lunch but then we had formal meetings each Friday um, and they had different themes so some of them were about conceptual development the next week would be about looking at how I was working at the the bench um, and how to make the physical making of work more sustainable changes that could could happen um, you know then a, the next week was looking for tools and going out to to, I uh, can't remember the name of that place, Mick International. Mm, that's right. We, we did all sorts. So the, the first one was quite different where, and, you know, and also where, you know, just broad discussions as well, but, but really intense meetings each week and informal meetings at lunchtime. Whereas the second mentorship, I was, you know, 16 years into my career. Um, I specifically wanted um, conceptual development and someone to discuss conceptual development with. Uh, we met once a month um, and that would be at different locations. I didn't work at Grey Street anymore. I worked in the Adelaide Hills, so I'm on Paramount Country. I should, should have mentioned that before. But uh, we met once a month uh, over, I think it was 10 or 11 months. Mm. And at the end of that one-on-one uh, -on -one mentorship, we had um, an exhibition. Um, and so it was quite a – we needed to show work, develop work. Uh, so I needed to do that and explore concepts and new processes. Yeah. Did your projects shift much during the mentorship? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I think the, the, from the first one, uh, the big breakthrough for me um, was so big, I had tears in my eyes. <laughs> You're rolling down my face. But um, I used to carve the plastic. So I don't know if anyone's familiar with my work. I work with PVC sheets and I carve it with wood carving tools. Um, and I could pretty much make one bangle a day. Um, I would have to hold the piece and work at the same time. So Catherine pointed out with her Feldenkrais um, expertise that my body's working against itself and it's very hard work um, to do that. And if I had something that could hold the plastic so I could work hands-free, just have both hands on the tool and centre the tool. Um, it would be much better for me as a maker. And I was like, oh, you know, thinking of a vacuum table and I thought the noise would drive me nuts. And then Catherine said, well, all we need is something that sticks well to PVC. And I was like, oh, hang on a minute. PVC sticks well to PVC. So I grabbed a piece, I stuck it down on the table with some double-sided tape and I can actually put a piece down on there and carve hands-free, I don't have to hold the work anymore. Uh, um, that was a huge breakthrough. And, and I knew I could carve in multiple directions. I was crying. I was like, oh, this is huge. 
that was a huge moment. And that's what I love about working so closely with people that you can um, problem solve together. You know, it's, a, it's about setting up mechanisms where the person can feel able to problem solve without the ment mentor later on. And that's key. It's, it's about thinking about an approach, not necessarily me teaching a technique or anything like that. It's really about encouraging an approach and a way of thinking to expand that. Thank yeah. you. I have a question from Bianca Kennedy. Please tell us more about what makes a good match in approaching a possible mentor. I'd be petrified to ask someone established and amazing and worry I wouldn't have anything to offer. Can I quickly jump in and answer that before you guys answer? Because this is a really common question when people are applying for Catapult. And my answer is you don't need to go for the most established artist and the one that you completely um, are kind of bowing down to. Go to an artist that's a few steps ahead of you and that you can, you know, you don't, you're not just going to take undertake one mentorship in a career you can do them for the rest of your life so you can incrementally learn and you can you know, make your way to that hero person but go for someone that you don't feel intimidated by and that you can kind of grow your confidence with so that you have that vulnerability that Kath and Catherine talked about and that you um, don't feel ashamed and that you feel um, really ready to grow and really able to give everything you can to the project. How about the three of you? Do you have any feedback on that? I would say that that was really important, Deb. And I think more and more, um, particularly with COVID and the um, university art courses being cut left, right and centre, and especially the studio-based courses, that the onus now will be on skill sharing amongst the community. I don't know how we're going to grow the seeds, mind you, but but this is a way of doing that. And and my, my thing would be, don't feel intimidated. We're all <laughs> bloody human. <laughs> Just ask, ask. I do. I ask all sorts of people, neuroscientists and ophthalmologists and microscopists. I just ask. So, and I think that's important just to dive in the deep end and go for it. You can, I mean, they can say no, you know, they can say yes. <laughs> that's scary too. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be a bit scary, I think. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, we have another question from Veronica Skipworth. Sorry, Veronica, you mentioned this earlier and I'm kind of getting through the chat. Um, Veronica's wondering how to connect with a mental being in a rich and rural area um, working with encaustic wax and not sure how to put myself out into the public arena with writing grants and CVs and entering art shows. There's definitely a lot to undertake as an artist. There's no mm -hmm. doubt about that. Um, but I... As Catherine just said, I think you've just got to get in there and give it a go. But if, Veronica, you want to have a chat to Guildhouse, we can help identify a particular artist with you and how to approach them for sure. And that's the beauty of a paid mentorship is that if even if you're regionally based, you have the money to help support your travelling and to meet up with someone that might not necessarily be regionally based. And there's Zoom. I mean, at the moment I'm mentoring someone in New Zealand, in Auckland, uh, which is fabulous. We meet once every month uh, via Zoom and we email each other and that's going to happen over two years. All sorts of things are possible now. Distance, yes, distance is a, is a problem. I'd love to be in the same studio as, as um, this person. But uh, when it's not possible, it's still quite rich and having that gap between sessions is, is fantastic. It's, you need a gap between sessions to, to ruminate and think and process and 
put things into practice and then come back and ask questions. So it's possible regionally, definitely. Do we have any questions from anyone else? You mentioned, or it's been mentioned, that there's no other reports really before now around this topic, and I wonder why. Do you have any insight? Is that too big a question to end on? Huge question. I'll just quickly say one is I've already mentioned, which I think is it's kind of been taken for granted and it's just something that you do in the arts and creative space. And I think people have been really generous with their time historically and it's seen as something you do rather than something we need to set aside as special because it is special. The other part of this, and this goes back to Catherine's point about funding and studio time being wound back and education being wound back and everything being wound back in this space, I think there just hasn't been the funding available to support um, investigations into it as much as we need more funding to support this kind of handing over of skills, whether it's a mentorship or maybe a slightly longer kind of apprenticeship model whereby people are paid a longer period of time to support someone. It just hasn't been the resourcing given to this area that should have been, and it continues to unfortunately not be. But I don't want to end on a good note. I want to end on a positive note. I just really love the anecdote about the PVC too, and it spoke to when people, uh, one of the key things people said they got out of it was more sustainable practice. And I love that kind of way in which it meant that you could work more efficiently, it, you could work. Uh, some people reported ways in which they just, somebody said, have you tried doing it this way as a way of just minimising offcuts or just cost benefit? And I also love the fact that the Fendelkra was central and a focus on the body and a focus on OHS and caring for yourselves as workers as well. Because there's no union necessarily protecting creative workers, although in some sectors there are. But just having that care for the self was an important part of the relationship for you and for other people. And I think that's a really lovely thing here too, to not lose sight of. Thank you. Agreed. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you to Susan, Kath and Catherine. It was really inspiring and generous to hear um, of your experiences and also to unpack some of that research. And um, I look forward to seeing what the final research reveals as well. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Revision podcast series recorded on Ghana Country. This series is brought to you by Guildhouse, our supporting partners and session speakers. Please head to our website guildhouse.org.au for more information on the series and our artistic collaborations with and professional development opportunities for Australian artists. Revision was developed with support from Australia Council for the Arts, the Day Family Foundation and Creative Partnerships Australia and has continued through the generous philanthropic support of the Guildhouse Creative Visionaries.